This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number three of the series of studies in the book of Joshua. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read with us two psalms, Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. We have just read together Psalms 90 and 91. And over the top of Psalm 90 we read a prayer of Moses, the man of God. But there's no title given to the author of Psalm 91. But the rabbinical rule is that if no author is given, it's the same writer that's been already specified. Psalm 90 and 91 are a pair. Now, you notice that in Psalm 90 it says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Well, they're looking back into eternity. They were not there. This is a doctrinal statement which they all endorsed. But when you turn to the next psalm, they're not looking back to eternity. They're saying, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. So you see, verse 9, Because thou hast made the Lord which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, it's one thing to have a doctrine, and it's another thing to have it practiced. Well now, Psalm 90 speaks about people who were suffering under the wrath of God. You notice it comes quite a number of times. Verse 7, We are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. In verse 9, All our days are passed away in thy wrath, we spend our years of the tale that is told. And then, of course, there is that wonderful foreshadowing of the average length of life. I don't know whether I could say that because I'm living in the insurance world and the average life might be about 40 or 50, for all I know. But quite a number have looked at verse 10 as though it gave an indication that you would live to 70 or possibly to 80. But the man who wrote these words was 120 when he died in full strength walked to the top of a mountain and died. What he was saying is to these people, you came out of Egypt and when you were 20 years of age and upward, you were accounted uh, mature enough to bear arms and become a soldier. Therefore you had a vote and you had a responsibility. And because you failed so signally to believe what I wanted you to do and you said that I brought you out that you and your children were going to die in the wilderness, the very children that you said would be preserved miraculously by me all that forty years, and you who have grumbled against me will never enter the land of promise. So if you were twenty, you couldn't live longer than sixty. If you were thirty, you wouldn't get longer than seventy. If you were eighty, you wouldn't get more than... If you were forty, you wouldn't get more than eighty, and after that it would be a little bit of a trouble. And you know, uh, the one who with Joshua did overcome and go right through, he was 80. He just about got to the limit. So there's a point here, you see. There are two companies here. Some were going to die by one reason or another in that wilderness, and you can read the story in the book of Numbers onwards. But it says, you should not come by thy dwelling. You are going to be protected from the pestilence of the arrow, and at long last I will show you my deliverance or my salvation. And they did, they crossed the river Jordan, and they went into the land of promise. Then the type stops, 
for they were just as bad as their father that died in the wilderness. But that's another story. So you see, this has a bearing upon our subject. Because these people came out of Egypt redeemed by the blood of the Passover. And it's a lesson for us that that, while it sets us free from the bondage of our spiritual Egypt, it doesn't mean that the moment we are redeemed by the Passover land, we are sanctified and justified and we've grown in grace because these people, well, they soon started worshipping a golden calf and they did so many outrageous things, but they never went back to Egypt. They were the same people that they lost. Now, Moses himself was prohibited from going into the land, so it, it means to say that he lost something, but he did not lose his salvation. He had a very prominent position, but as a type, he was a type of the law. And the law only led to Christ, but couldn't go take you further. Joshua picks up the story, and his name, of course, you know, is the name Jesus. Now that leads us to this thought that we have something of a repetition, don't we? This people crossed the Red Sea, and they were baptized into Moses. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then all over again they crossed the river Jordan. And the word baptism comes again when the, the priest's feet are dipped in the water. Now why the second time? Well you say, you might ask that question about many parts of God's word. Until at last you begin to realise it's embedded in it. Why the second man of the last Adam? It's a part of God's programme. The first man was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As we have borne the image of the earthy with all its lessons, problems, and all of the many things that it would teach us, so one day, by his mercy, if we're redeemed, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. It's a part of a program. And then you might say, uh, think of the way in which Stephen rehearsed the history of his own people. How Abraham came out of the earth of Chaldees, but he focuses upon Joseph and stops at him. He said, the second time, Joseph was made known unto his brethren. He came to them in the beginning and he showed them the visions that God had given him. And they said, well, we going to bow down to you? They did, friends, at long last. But only after the second time. And then he moves on quickly to Moses. And Moses thought they were going to accept him as a deliverer. But 40 years intervened before he came back. And this same Moses, whom they rejected, was a deliverer. And then he says, just as your father did, so you've done. Second time. And then you see, in Hebrews chapter 9, you're waiting for it, aren't you? And to them that look for him, shall he appear the second time? Without sin unto salvation. Why the second time? And in Hebrews, he does away with the first covenant and establishes the second. Well, if we go on like this a bit longer, we shall say, this looks as though it's not an accident. It's a part of the principle that God is working on. Now, why? Well, I happened to be speaking before the meeting about my grandson. We have nice little conflags together, and uh, he's a bright boy at the grammar school, and uh, he was, oh, my, he was telling me that one boy at the school had followed the instructions given uh, in connection with some uh, stamps and national saving, that you send that stamp to this boy with so many names, and they said, he says, oh, he's got 40 letters with stamps in back again. And he was working out 525 on the top. Oh, my, his fortune was made. My grandson, 
I hope it won't be because, you know, it'll be a good lesson to him. He thinks that everybody who gets the request of St. Dixbury said to him, going to do it. Now you see, his arithmetic's all right, his mathematics are all right, but morals don't work, my arithmetic friends. The moment God made man, something else came in. I'll tell you what came in, if. If. There was no if about creation. The sun had no hesitation about going or standing, or the moon, or the stars, they all did what God wanted them without even knowing it. That's the story. And God's now going to get obedience from someone who could turn around once and say no to him, and will one day say yes. And it takes 6,000 years from Adam to the coming of Christ, the second man, the last Adam, to accomplish it. A thousand years of this type is but a day. And so that people... Of course, they fell and the others went in, but they may have been as bad, but they were tight. That people were led out of Egypt, but it was the second time they crossed the water before they entered into their land. It was simply following the same program. I'll need you to work that out a bit more, if you care. You think about even other things that have to do with the discipline of this period. Even our Saviour chose twelve men that he said one of them was a devil. He chose Judas, knowing who he was. So there are many puzzles and problems that, are, uh, that belong to our pathway. Deuteronomy chapter 8 said, says, I led you through that wilderness. I fed you with bread from heaven. And I suffered you to hang and to hunger. Don't forget God who fed them said, and I also kept it away from you. Why? That you may know what's in your own heart, and that you may learn that man doth not live by bread only. So evidently, there is a purpose that God has, unexplained to us in detail, but covered generally by that thought. Well, that's just to say to you that the crossing of the Red Sea is duplicated. It's a second time. The first time it's under Moses, the law, and that brought nobody to life or righteousness. If there could have been a law that would have given life, verily, righteousness would have come by the law, but it couldn't. The law was a pedagogue until Christ and left us there and he became our master. So it's, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, the name Jesus, arise and take them over Jordan. Well, that's where we've got this evening to look at this story of the crossing of the Jordan. So shall we turn to the book of Joshua and pick up the story at chapter 3. <coughs> at our last meeting, we were considering uh, the story of Rahab and the Scarlet Thread. And now we will go on and see a little bit further about this um, crossing of the Jordan. Will you glance at the chart that you have in front of you, so that by the means of the outstanding features, we shan't lose ourselves in a wealth of detail. First of all, in verses 3 to 6, there is a command of the people and a reference to the ark. Shall we look at that passage? And Joshua rose early in the morning and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days, notice the three days. There's often an indication in the scriptures without anything further said. The three days is are always associated in the mind of the believer with resurrection. And that seems to be partly in the thought here. This is where this type begins to come in. 
And the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. When you see the ark, go after it. Now here we have an introduction of something that does not come in the story of redemption by the Passover lamb. There were no priests, and there was no ark. It was only the head of the family in the Passover. But when you come out into the wilderness and you have a tabernacle built and an ark and a mercy seat and a covenant made and access into his presence, you have the priest and the ark. So now we've got, in the Passover lamb, we have Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the ark and the priest, we have Jesus Christ and him risen and ascended, for this has to do with a mercy seat to draw near to have access. And no Christian is complete who only has been delivered by the Passover from Egypt and has never gone into the presence of God by the right of access that we associate with the Ark and the Mercy Seat. And so we've got there both aspects in the New Testament and here we've got the discipline of the 40 years in between. Then we go further and it says, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Uh, we won't speculate on those 2,000 cubits to divide them from the um, other people. We might even try to calculate when the Blessed Hope will take place, using a year for uh, a, 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 a cubit for a year. Uh, but I'm going to refrain. I don't know. I only know that in God's good time it will come and Perhaps somebody else understands why the 2,000 cubits were put there. I'll confess, I don't know. But you come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. That there, evidently, this was going to be to keep them from swarming across this river, or this bed. Go in the direction of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that's a good, that's a wise thing, isn't it? And wait a little bit to make sure that you see which way it's going. Well, that's wise too. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. Well then, we come to the um, next item, verse 7, and here we have another anticipation of our Saviour. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee. As I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will begin to magnify thee. Does it mean a great stretch of imagination to come up through into the New Testament to the banks of this very river Jordan and see the heaven open and a voice saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? That's where he began to be magnified. And then the scripture leads you on until the day comes when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and that's when the magnification of it becomes actual and real. So glitch down this chart again, will you? And look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. And of course when we get to chapter 4, verse 14, we're over the Jordan. On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So he began at the banks of the Jordan. And when they were right over, he magnified him as he promised. Now that was very quickly following. In our Saviour's case, he's sitting at the right hand of God, henceforth expecting. But as the scripture warns you, a thousand years and a day are just the same when we're reckoning with things of God. 
So we come back on our story, and we find in verse 8, uh, a command to these priests. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. But when you look down this chart again, you find that there's another command in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 4. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony, that they come up out of Jordan. And in verse 17, Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up, out of the midst of Jordan, if I say it many times, you think it means it, won't you? That the souls of the priest's feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place, and flowed over all his banks, as they did before. There's a finish, isn't it? So they went down and they stood still, without any fear of that water flowing back. And then when the moment came, come up, and they did. The waters went, and the whole thing was completed. And the come up is a word that suggests the resurrection element that we have more than once in this story. But we go back again. Now all this has got a moral. Like the rest of the Bible, it's not merely something spectacular, it has a meaning. So we're back in chapter 3, verse 9. And uh, Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither, and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and so on. And it goes on to, uh, oh, it ends at verse 10 with the Jebusites. I haven't read the names of all these Canaanites, but you know there's a whole crowd of them. So here was something to confirm to this people, as they stood on the brink of Jordan, that they were now on the very verge of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and at last he's confirming to them. He said, I will give you that land. But you see, it wasn't just getting up and going straight into the land. Even Abraham had to learn that although he went into the land and walked through it, the length of it and the breadth of it, he never possessed a bit of it but what he bought and paid for as a burial ground. The second time's coming in again, you see. Not the first, the second time. Oh, Abraham... He hasn't lost anything because the Lord revealed a bit more to him so he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. You never lose anything if you believe what God says but you might lose a lot by hanging on to the things that first of all make their appeal to you. So here we are once more. Now then, the next thing is uh, in chapter 4, verse 18 this emphasis upon the fact that it has got a meaning. <coughs> uh, where are we? Chapter 4, verse all the people of Jordan. That goes right the way down to the, um, the next chapter. That all the people of the earth might know. And uh, we'll leave that till we, till we get a little bit further through. Come back again. In chapter 3, 13 to 17, something happened to that, that river. It says, and it shall come to pass. As soon as the soles of the feet of the, ark, of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that those waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon an heap. I saw in an advertisement uh, of some article 
with a double swirl of wind, a possible explanation of how the Red Sea was dried up for the children of Israel. Well, God said he said to the east wind, what he did with it and how he did it, it doesn't matter. He did it. Uh, there is a possible uh, explanation for the drying up of the river Jordan because it's been dried up many times. But the point is, to have it dried up just at the identical moment, like five minutes would have made, made all the difference between life and death with regard to the Egyptians after Israel and the Red Sea, wouldn't it? Well, that five minutes is a bit of a miraculous thing, than it, it, but by accident it happened. So it doesn't matter whether wind blew or God blew or what he did about it, he had it under control. Now, sometimes uh, there comes a fall of earth on the steep banks of the Jordan. It's cut very deep into the soil, you remember. And sometimes that means that there's no water flowing past this place until the water piles right up and then comes clean over the top and all starts again. It's been done before. But you see, it was under the Lord's control, so he did it this time. And you're reminded in this story that the Jordan overflows all its banks at that very time. It wasn't a tiny little skinny little river that you could jump across. It was a place that drowned a lot of them at that time, you see. So here's the miracle. But now the point. Read, read on a little bit further. And it came to pass, I'm reading verse 14. When the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, never lose sight of that covenant, you remember. Go after it. Where it goes, you go, otherwise you're lost. And as they bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that were where the ark were baptized in the brim of the water, I'm giving you the word that's in the Septuagint, which gives us the word in the New Testament. Here is the baptism at Jordan. For the Jordan overflowing all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap, very far from the city Adam. Now another rendering of that is that it went back as far as the city of Adam. And that's what it means. That the water was cut off, not at anywhere, but at just one place on the banks of the river Jordan where a city named Adam stood. Now you say, just a matter of coincidence. So it might be. But when you come to the epistle to the Romans as you see that this great river of judgment's coming down and it's got to go right back to Adam before it can be cut off and swamp us. Oh, you say that's been waiting in that book for those 2,000 years for the coming of the Son of God to make this type into a reality. Go right back to Adam. And I, I'm sure that, that there would be no need to tell us the name of that little village on the banks of the Jordan if it hadn't got a symbolic meaning. And so we find in verse 17, And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. You know, you can stand firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. If the Lord is with you, the Ark of the Covenant's gone before. We might sort of be a little bit chary of stepping in and test it a little bit with our foot, and yes, but we can follow. If only he's gone before and so it said they stood firm on dry land. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. I know we've had this before at another series that came in, but I must repeat it here because it's not 
necessary that they will, folks will listening to the same tapes at the same time. You see, in the first record they pass over. That's all. The Red Sea. But this time they pass clean over. And that's repeated. And the word clean has no reference to water washing them. It's the word perfect. That is to say, something is clean gone. We use it in the same figure. That's what I've done here. This was the complete thing. The first one was a symbol. They were baptized into Moses. The second one was a reality. They were baptized into Jesus or Joshua. And that, of course, is a type. But the two together make a complete whole. So now, the completeness of their deliverance is stamped upon it. They come out of Egypt, and now they're going in. Because, you see, there's no completeness if you come out and you don't go in. God doesn't lead you out and leave you there. Some gospel preachers do that. They preach salvation from, and forget to preach salvation to. And even so, with regard to the word ransom and the word redeem, any amount of times we hear a per- person preaching, and we're thankful they do it, friends, redemption from sin and giving the forgiveness of sins. But so many, many times, they never come to the point and say, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. Redemption touches death as well as sin. Otherwise, we are saved to rejoice in the forgiveness of sins for our little brief life, and that's the end of it. If God had never touched death as well as sin, so, we come out of Egypt. That's the first aspect of redemption. We go into the land of promise through the river Jordan, and that's the second one. And the whole thing is now complete. The ransom has touched our sin and our bondage. The ransom has touched the grip of death, another bondage. And now the type is completed. And these people have followed Joshua right the way through. Well then, you will see that there are uh, uh, the little symbolisms. Go back on the story and look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Oh, that goes on, does it? On, does it? Yes. I, I was so clean over Jordan that I had to come back again. That's not a bad idea, is it? And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over, I mean, it's mentioned in the gate in case you didn't notice it, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man. So, this is representative. Not twelve men, but twelve representative men, one for a tribe. And command ye them, saying, Take you heads out of the midst of Jordan, not anywhere that's easy to get, not just on the very brink, but go to one spot, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm. This is important, you see. You've got to go where the priest's feet stood firm. Here we have again a reference to the perfection of the work of Christ, and here we're going to get a change. A strange thing's going to be done. And I suppose looked at from a utilitarian point of view, a waste of time. They're going to take twelve stones out of the bed of the river, and take them up and put them on the bank, and then they're going to find twelve stones up there, and bring those twelve back and put them back again. You say, well, what an idiotic idea. Just in the same way, when you think of the going around the walls of Jericho, they're going to they're going to war against these people in Jericho and their weapons are a little tiny trumpet that makes a little squeaky sound and that's all they do for seven days. Good enough though, if the Lord says so, you see. Now this, this symbolism's got to be done. The twelve stones are going to be taken out and put up there, that's they cross the Jordan, one for every tribe. 
But they only go there because someone took their place and were put buried again down there in Jordan. Now you're going to do that. Well, this the Lord decided this way. There may have been other ways, but he decided this. So let's go on and see what happened. You take from thence, in the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man, and said to them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. See, you're representing now. According to the number of Israel, twelve stones. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Well, now we are back almost to similar words that are re- written in Exodus about the Passover. When your children say to you, What mean you by this? You explain the Passover to them. And when your children ask you, What mean you by these stones? You explain the stones to them. And it's called a memorial feast. And our Saviour used the word when he says, Do this not merely in remembrance of me, as it sounds on the surface, but do this as my memorial. And this is to be a memorial. And you'll see at the bottom of this chart, there are twelve memorials in the Old Testament. Well, should we give them a glimpse? Because this is an opportunity to do it without turning the pages of your Bible. I'm saving you, see, energy. First of all, we have the Passover. Exodus 12, 14. That is to be a memorial. But not only is the deliverance from Egypt without lifting a finger by the blood of the Lamb, but if you have believed in Christ, you purge out the old leaven, even as you are unleavened, because that means to say a life is going to be changed. And so the apostle uses that figure, um, and the unleavened bread is a memorial. And then the war that they, they had to with Amalek, in the wilderness is said to be a memorial. Uh, of course, some of these things want to be examined in uh, detail because Amalek, you see, is the flesh because he was a relative, Amalek. He wasn't just an absolute foreigner. And they, uh, you remember how Amalek was only defeated while Moses' hands were lifted. And isn't it wonderful to realize that Moses, the man of God, his hands were held up by two men who stood on either side of him, so we could share with the great intercession of Christ by sharing with it in our limited way. And then we come to the stones on the shoulder of the high priest, which bear the names of the children of Israel for memorial before the Lord. And um, the stones also were upon his heart on the breastplate, the shoulder is the place of government, the heart is the place of affection, and the children of Israel were in both places. And then we have the atonement in the 30th chapter, spoken of as a memorial. Then we come further onto the next column, the sounding of trumpets. And of course those trumpets were not merely just to make a jazz band, I don't suppose they sounded very musical in the estimate of the festival hall. Uh, I think if you heard David playing the harp, it would have been very crude and very primitive, but that doesn't matter. It's the heart that matters that goes with it. 
But these trumpets, they were significant. They had a symbolism. There was a trumpet that was to be sounded to gather the people to worship. And there was a trumpet that was to be sounded if there was a battle. And so the apostle says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, you don't know whether you're going to go to worship or you're going out to battle, who shall prepare himself? So we need certain sounds. And then we have a great feast of the trumpets that comes once a year. The blowing of trumpets. And you know how that's picked up by the apostles in these scriptures? That the, the last trump, that the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, the trumpet blowing. And in the book of the Revelation, they come, you know, quite a number of times. And so we have a memorial of jealousy, a memorial of the senses that were used by those who offered strange incense and were terribly punished for their attitude. The offerings, twelve stones again, we've come down on the second parallel, the twelve stones in the Jordan. You see over this side we had twelve stones resting on the breastplate of Aaron. It just nicely fits, you see. And then we have in the book of, the, of Zechariah the crowns that both priest and king wear are also memorials. Well now you see that's a subject of its own to make it speak, isn't it? I've tried to crowd it into just a paragraph. So we're back again on the uh, remainder of this story of crossing the river Jordan. Now after telling the children of Israel uh, about these, uh, being a memorial, it says in verse 8 of chapter 4, And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua. You notice those words come many times, as the Lord spake unto Joshua. If you want to get it insisted upon, read the last chapter of Exodus at your leisure, and you'll find that every item of the tabernacle is explained as the Lord commanded Moses. And then the next bit, as the Lord commanded Moses. And it doesn't say ditto because you get tired of saying it. It says it right out every time, right down that solid page of your Bible. You see, the, he told Joshua at the beginning to meditate upon this book and do not let it depart from your heart and your mouth. And that, of course, is truth for us, the very self-same insistence. So we have now uh, this, um, as the Lord commanded Moses, and took up the twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there, repeating the words that we've already read a little higher up. As I say, the Bible doesn't say ditto. It says it all over again. And sometimes we need it, don't we, to have it emphasized. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan. Joshua! Oh yes. Notice this. Twelve different men, each one representing a tribe, took the stones out of the bed and Joshua himself took twelve other stones and put them back. This is not fanciful, is it? It says. He told them to do one thing and he did the other. Now you see Joshua, the leader of this people, he's taking these twelve stones. And our Saviour is the only one who could go down into that death. These could go up because of him. But he was the only one who could take the twelve stones down into that Jordan. Now we're dealing with type and shadow, of course. We've got to change it into the New Testament language of being reckoned by the mercy of God to have died with him, to be buried with him, to be baptised into his death and associated with him. 
in his resurrection. All that's implicit in here is once we've got the other to guide us. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood. You remember? That was specified nowhere else. No strange ground, no strange offerings, always insisting upon that place where the Ark stood. And they are there unto this day. Now, if you say, are they there to, today? Well, of course, you want to put yourself back to when this was written. Uh, I don't suppose there's a single one left, and if so, nobody would quite know. But in that day, when I was speaking, there they could be seen by everyone. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished. Oh, I must turn back to that chapter I've spoken to you about. Look at the end of Exodus, the last chapter, and see that this is just exactly what Moses himself had to do at the finish. He went so far as he could, and there he had to stop. And in this last chapter, where it starts, verse 16, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, notice the days, here's the beginning, that the tabernacle was reared up. And then we have each one specified, and at the end of verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses. The end of verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he goes right down until we get to verse 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate, so Moses finished the work. Then a cloud, you see? The finished work, and then the cloud to lead them. Now we've got a finished work in Joshua, and they're over into the land, and then the next is go in and possess it. You see, there's a, something of a parallel in this emphasis. So we're back again in Joshua 4. Until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto his people. Do remember our Saviour's words on the cross. It is finished. And then look at the context. Jesus, knowing now that all things that were written of him had been complied with, said, I thirst. They gave him the, they gave him the vinegar to drink. And then he said, he said, it is finished. Or of no trifling, everything that was said of him was done by him. The true Joshua. The true Moses. So you and I must not be saying we're not going to be bound by the mere letter of the word as long as we act in spirit. Oh, we've heard that. But you cannot act in spirit and deny the mere letter of this word, for this word is God's word. And every item of it is to be fulfilled. Nothing unnecessary. Until everything was that the Lord that finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people, according to all that Moses commanded Joshua, and the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass, when all were clean passed over, that the ark of the Lord passed over. So every single one of them was there. That ark remained in the midst of Jordan until everyone was passed over. It's a symbol. But we can take courage, can't we, that not one of us is going to be left behind or go straggling after and get lost. No. He's going to see to it that not one. And how our Saviour stressed that when he was here, didn't he? My sheep hear my voice. They follow me and none shall pluck them out of my hand. 
And here they are, they're all clean over. How many of them? Goodness me, you say, all this lot crossing Jordan, listen. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. This was an undertaking all there. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they feared him and they feared Moses all the days of his life. And there is a sad comment to that, isn't there? But when that little company had gone, then the days of judges come in, when they knew not God, and every man did that which was right in the sight of his own eyes, and back we are again on other types and shadows. But this is a complete little thing. They've come right out, and they stand all the days of Joshua. Well, then the next, next thing that had to be done was, as you see further down in this, and had to do a strange thing. These people were all had to submit to the right of circumcision. And there we are told that when that was done, the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. Uh, just notice it says, verse 19, And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and encamped in Gilgal. And the word Gilgal means to roll. And so we are told that this rite of circumcision rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And of course, circumcision has a spiritual meaning in the New Testament. In fact, it had a spiritual meaning in the Old. It meant no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in self. That's how it's interpreted by Paul in Philippians. And here, this people can easily be misled by confidence in themselves. No confidence in the flesh is stressed on the banks of the River Jordan. Well then I think we should have to leave it for the time and uh, I can only feel that what I can do in these meetings is to give you a few hints and ask you to go back to it and read it yourself again and again for there's more in this book, shall I say, than even I know. I'm so modest.